everyone. My name is Greg Whitfield. I'm Junior Research Fellow in WISE here at the Institute for Advanced Study. Now, the Institute for Advanced Study organizes a series of talks each year around two organizing themes, which are meant to bring in people from all over the university and all over the community to cross disciplinary boundaries that are uh, sadly not often crossed. And our theme this year, one of our themes this year, that I've co-directed with my colleague Joe, has been on lies. Now we take that very broadly to include issues of trust and corruption and mistreatment of uh, documents in archives and literature and art, uh, and among other things we could go on. <clears throat> this is our uh, final speaker of the summer season. We're going to go on a brief hiatus across July and August, and we're going to come back in the fall with announced talks from uh, Lauren Slater, who's getting to the heart of it, speaking on lies and lying, who promises to be an excellent talk, and soon to be announced uh, speakers on conspiracy theories, corruption, political advertising, and the philosophy of language and lying. So the diverse array of people talking about a uh, wild array of things that we're uh, excited to continue in the fall. Uh, today, my only job is to tell you a little bit about what we do and introduce our team director, Tamara Garb, to introduce our speaker for this evening. Thank you, opportunity really to showcase the work we do here. We hope the fact that you've come tonight indicates if you're interested not only in our eminent speaker, Mariana Sakato, but also in the kinds of things that we do in the IAS and that this will um, bring back some of you who have been here before um, and hopefully uh, others of you will uh, be interested in coming again. Can I say to those of you at the back that there are at least seven or eight seats in the front and that if you find it difficult to hear or to see once the images start, Please do come up front and take your seats up here. Um, it's always nice to have a full house up front in any case. Hopefully. Okay, well, it's my um, enormous pleasure to uh, introduce Professor Maria Matsukato, um, who's a colleague here, recently appointed at UCL in the chair um, in the Economics of Innovation and Public Value, a wonderful title which I find intriguing in itself. And as I do the name of the institute that she directs, she is the director of UCL's Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. That in itself, I think, opens up all sorts of questions about what we mean by public and how we might conceive of what public purpose is. And um, she's renowned for her critical way of approaching uh, economics and uh, um, theories of the public and the space of the public. And I'm sure we're going to um, be treated tonight to one of her uh, characteristic, innovative and groundbreaking and radical interventions um, into thinking about what economic value is, who possesses economic value, and the um, competing claims on public value and economic value uh, between the private and the public sectors, so-called. Um, I'm sure many of you uh, know of Mariana Matsukato's extraordinary achievements. She's the winner of 
many prizes, among which in 2014 she won the New Statesman Sperry Prize in Political Economy. In 2015, she won the Hansa Mutthofer Prize, um, and in 2018, the Leontief Prize for Advancing the Frontiers of Economic Thought. So that's an indication of the kind of esteem within which she's held. Uh, her highly acclaimed book, The Entrepreneurial State, Debumping, Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths, was published in 2013 and was on the 2013 Books of the Year list of the Financial Times. She's recently published a new book called The Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy, which was published earlier this year. And I believe um, you're going to be speaking to that particular project um, this evening. She also has an incredibly important role as a policy um, advisor, working with policymakers around the world. She's currently a member of the Scottish Government's Council of Economic Advisors, as well as the UN Sustainable Development Solutions Network Leadership Council. She's a special advisor for the EC Commissioner for Research, Science and Innovation. I'm not going to go on to her other um, incredible roles, but she's one of those people who embodies what it is to traverse those worlds of the academy and um, the public sector and uh, you know, various outfits that actually affect policy making in the world. So um, we're enormously privileged and happy to have her here, and um, I ask you to welcome Mariana Matsukato. Oh, it's good to do this one. Um, it's great to be here. I don't know why I haven't come here before, just to chat. So hopefully this is just the uh, beginning. Lots of props. Okay, which I do. Okay, good, good, good. I've got lots of props here. So I last minute changed my mind of what to talk about. So uh, I'm going to sort of bring together two different issues. One is, in fact, the stories and myths around the public. And by that, I mean the public sector. And don't think of the state as sort of big brother. Think of all the different types of public institutions around you, whether it be the NHS, the BBC, et cetera. So that, I really want to talk about that because I think progressives have sort of missed the plot on that. We've, we've spent so much time fighting austerity, which is just money. Money comes and goes. Organizations don't. When you kind of, you know, ooh, what's happening? Okay, battle against the Open University or the BBC or the NHS, it can take 50 or more years for those organizations actually to come back. Whereas if you cut a budget, as bad as that is, and we all know that's not good when it sort of dismantles the social fabric of society, we know that money actually can come and go at the quarter level, right? Theresa May is spending, Donald Trump is spending on walls and things like that. Um, so I think it's really important to understand the sort of structural composition and how we think about public sector bodies. And I really wanna talk about that quite a bit tonight, but, because I just read a book <laughs> on something broader, which actually has a lot to do with the theme this year of the Institute for Advanced Studies, lies and myths and stories were told. I really thought, wait, hold on, I should be presenting the new book, not the old book. Anyway, so I'm gonna do both books, and I, I've given so much time, I think too much time, to said a whole hour, which no, don't worry, I'll speak 40 minutes or 45 minutes, but that's plenty of time to kind of go through some of the basic issues that I want to address around this theme. Um, so first of all, this kind of punchline, if you just want to take away one thing from this book, what I argue is that the topic of sort of value extraction, right? So 
uh, different actors in the economy extracting value rather than, say, creating it, and I'll go into what I mean by that, has actually been around for a very long time. But what's new about the modern age, kind of 21st century capitalism, is that lots of value extraction happens in the name of value creation. So the innovators and you know, big tech and all this great wealth creation. The word wealth creators has even been used by the Labor Party when they lost the 2015 election. They said, we lost because we didn't embrace the wealth creators. And I was like, oh, maybe you lost because you, sorry, it wasn't 2015, 210, 210. Wait, when did, oh my God, I can't remember. When was Miliband running? Like, 2015, okay, sorry. I do have a slip disc, by the way. If I start sounding weird or looking weird, I have this terrible thing that happened to me on an airplane, so I have no feeling on my right arm. Um, <laughs> that'll be a good excuse for anything foolish I say. But yeah, so even the Labor Party, right? Labor Party, you'd think there'd be an idea of labor also being key to the wealth creation process. The day after they lost, there was three different articles which basically said we lost because we didn't embrace the wealth creators. And I thought, hmm. We need to really tackle that term. So that's what this book is about, that when you don't actually have a real debate in society and in the economy between economists, but also in the way that economists advise policymakers, if we don't have a real debate on value, what is economic value, and it just becomes Econ 101 uh, without really kind of uh, discussing what the underlying assumptions are about which actors in the economy we think are valuable or more productive than others, then we get in trouble. It becomes really easy for uh, some actors to actually present themselves as value creators because that word just becomes so fuzzy. It's actually left economics departments and gone to business schools, value chains, shareholder value, value-based pricing. And so I, I really unpick that. Um, and first of all, it's not, you know, it's, it's a pretty old theme actually, um, this whole issue of extraction. What's new, as I said, is it being presented as value creation. But I found all these different quotes that were really relevant for the book, and this is one by one of the first uh, U.S. Uh, industrial trade union leaders who you know, couldn't say it better and just you know, replace, replace here any uh, industry today where you have huge profits being made. Um, the barbarous gold barons, they did not find the gold, they did not mine the gold, they did not mill the gold, but by some weird alchemy, all the gold belongs to them. Um, so what is that alchemy? Um, and what I found quite curious is that recently, both in the private sector, so this is Larry Fink, CEO of BlackRock, a big investment firm, um, as well as the ex-leader of the Labor Party, Ed Miliband, we're also kind of struggling with this, right? So this is kind of bipartisan, if you want, you know, from labor to different types of conservative uh, politicians are talking this language, and the private institutions like the CEO of such a big company saying we need to refine purpose. There's too much extraction. There's too much short-termism. There's too much speculation. Um, and he wrote this wonderful letter to all these, I think, 500 CEOs saying we have to rethink ourselves. Um, we are extracting. We're you know, no longer creating. Let's reform the system. Um, so why do things not change? Right? Why is it that after the financial crisis, which in some ways was caused by caused by many things, but one could also say it was caused by us having allowed the economy to be basically run by <laughs> finance, not financing things in the real economy, but finance, financing itself. You think of fire, finance, insurance, and real estate, lots of the financial sector is basically fueling itself. Um, and so levels of private debt to disposable income were extremely high just before the crisis, and guess what? 
they're equally high now. So in this country, the little growth that there is is actually mainly, um, not only, but mainly driven by consumption-led growth uh, funded by private debt. So all this discussion about public debt, we must reduce the debt, kind of misses the point that there was this huge amount of private debt because real incomes weren't uh, increasing and so people had to take out credit just to retain their existing living standards. Um, anyway, so a huge financial crisis occurs. Everyone's still talking about it. We're about to have the anniversary in September, 10th um, anniversary of it, and yet so little has changed. Lots of the value extraction policies, if you just look at things like share buybacks, so the amount of uh, money that companies spend just on buying back their own shares to boost stock prices, to boost stock options, which boost, surprise, surprise, executive pay. If anything, that's on the rise. So companies like Apple didn't really do that under Steve Jobs. That's their business model today under Tim Cook. Uh, investment banks like Goldman Sachs are actually earning record level profits. Um, and we haven't reformed the financial system, right? So there was talk about having a financial transaction tax that would penalize kind of short-term trade and would somehow also, through other types of policies, reward long-termism. That hasn't happened, right? So what I argue is the reason that even though there's all these kind of sensible guys, like you know, Miliband here making this difference between predatory versus producer capitalism and then told by his own party, oh, don't say that, that's gonna sound business unfriendly. Um, anyway, there's all this talk about labor on different types of politicians and even the companies saying, we have to change. Why has there been so little change? And so what I argue in this book is because, as I just said, I gave you the punchline already, there is an extremely fuzzy, confused, and we could use the word lying, <laughs> uh, discourse about where value comes from. And it becomes really hard, actually, to, for example, tax wealth, which is you know, the big conclusion in Piketty's book. Can you guys hear me in the back? There's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven chairs up front if you can't see. Um, and we won't look at you strangely when you come. I'll just smile. Uh, um, uh, what was I saying? Right, so it, it becomes very hard to drive an economy just by taxing wealth. I think that has to also be complemented by uh, new narratives, new stories, new ideas about where wealth comes from. Only in that way will progressive taxation policies also be more resilient and not sort of come and go. And these stories about wealth, and I have a quote in just a minute, but I'll even tell you now. Plato said, storytellers rule the world. So these stories about where wealth comes from, I think, are incredibly powerful. And so debunking them, sort of uncovering, again, it's a very strong word, this lies word, but I can use it because it's a theme, of the Institute for Advanced Studies here, um, becomes really important. So more than calling them lies, I think it's really important to, to kind of debunk the underlying assumptions uh, and, and also just showing those assumptions. Often they're just implicit, but they're just told as sort of common sense ideas. So this just struck me as absolutely incredible that after the crisis, immediately after the crisis, so 2009, you know, things were still really bad. They still are in many ways, but anyway, still very visible in the streets you had the CEO of Goldman Sachs, Lloyd Blankfield, saying with a completely straight face, it was not on a comedy night in, in a bar or anything, saying the people of Goldman Sachs are the most productive in the world, right? So productive in what sense? How are we measuring productivity? And of course, there's a very uh, strong correlation with how we talk about productivity and value and you know, who we think is valuable and wealth and which actors in the economy are sort of smarter for that reason. Your wealth somehow measures how smart you are. My brother always says, if you're so smart, why do you earn so little? Um, so yeah, that kind of idea, right? Um, and then uh, even some, not acronyms, but how you say slogans of companies like Google, 
don't, you know, that we don't do evil, we do good. You know, who do we actually think are doing good? And, and this whole notion that in Silicon Valley there's all this good stuff going on, Elon Musk, you know, the new hero after uh, Steve Jobs. There's lots, if you look at the actual narratives and the stories of how he described those processes, you know, he's doing good stuff, he's trying to actually solve big global problems, and Google itself having that actually as his motto, don't do evil, so do good. Um, then ring fencing, uh, uh, so, you know, these valuable financial services during Brexit, there was a real uh, scare when Brexit, well, Brexit hasn't happened, it probably won't happen, they can't manage it. By the way, do you know that four consulting companies are managing Brexit? <laughs> They've actually decimated the civil service to such an extent, they just can't manage it, literally. And this would be interesting for a PhD student or a, or a journalist to find just how much money the government is spending directly, not indirectly, through job losses, et cetera through Brexit, but when Brexit started to happen, to unravel, there was this notion, oh, we have to protect the really valuable sectors that might get kind of screwed in the process, and financial services was seen as very valuable. There's some, like, lots of quotes, both also before Brexit by people like Gordon Brown, just saying how much value financial services bring to the economy. Um, very high prices in the medical industry, so prices of drugs, of uh, medicines, I shouldn't say drugs, because in some countries they think marijuana, but you know, medicines like uh, medicines for diabetes, hepatitis C being so high and being justified again through these narratives and stories, in this case about value-based pricing. So this word constantly popping up. Um, and then the opposite, right? So the state, we don't actually hear about public institutions as being creating value. At best, they redistribute value, right, through taxation, enable it, facilitate it, a word I really hate. If, if, if you imagine a marriage between two people, if one is facilitating the other, it's probably going to be an abusive, not very interesting marriage, right? So that the public sector is just facilitating the value creators, enabling, de-risking, setting up some sort of framework conditions. You don't hear the word wealth creation and value creation in terms of what the state does, right? So these are just kind of quick little snapshots of how we, in our everyday life, encounter this idea that some parts of the economy are really valuable and others perhaps not, whether it's implicit or explicit. And as I said, I was, uh, this is just a little snapshot of this article I wrote right after, yeah, it was 2015, sorry, the day before my birthday, wow, um, uh, an article saying, my God, actually, labor has to really think through its failings, and it's not because you didn't embrace the wealth creators, it's that you have not had a serious debate within your party about how to talk about wealth creation, right? You can't just have a redistribution agenda, you really have to engage in what does it mean to talk about labor, workers, different types of workers, different types of public institutions, different types of companies, different types of movements, including trade union movements, as part of this collective wealth creation system. We shouldn't forget, by the way, that trade unions got us things like weekends, not bad, uh, eight-hour workdays, not bad. That was absolutely part of this market-shaping process. And it's quite interesting that when we, again, talk about the public sector, we think of it as just fixing market failures. This is how economists talk about it. They're, they're not co-creating alongside other groups, markets, and surely uh, trade unions are not seen, or different types of social movements are not seen as co-creating markets, right? Markets exist, and you might resist it, you might intervene in it, you might regulate it, um, and if you're a movement, again, you might resist it, but you're not seen as a valuable co-creator of that market. And so I, I kind of addressed that there, and I said, I have to write a book about this. So that's this big, thick book that just came out a week ago. Um, and again, I think it's really important because he's right. He's absolutely right. Lots of the really regressive policies that have actually caused the kind of levels of inequality that Piketty talks about from 1970s onwards actually were uh, lobbied for, right? People had to fight for those policies. People, 
policies don't just arise, through particular stories. And I, I'm always very interested in how the capital gains tax, for example, fell by something like 50% in just four years in the US. Um, and that was done through lobbying of a particular group of people in the National Venture Capital Association, which had just formed and made it their kind of first big policy impact agenda to get that particular tax to fall in the name of the knowledge economy. You want an innovation economy, you want the knowledge economy, reduce our capital gains tax, which ended up having a huge redistributive effect, uh, which people like Warren Buffett, and he's not a communist, always remind us, had no effect on his investment, because where does he invest? Same place where VCs invest, when they see an opportunity, no matter how low taxes, if you think, wow, nanotech, that's the next big thing, green tech, AI, you'll invest. It's not about tax. Tax might affect your marginal amount of investment. And yet, again, the stories and the lobbying effort around that were quite exceptional, and it was done by a particular group of, of, of uh, people with this narrative about wealth creation. So, now the problem is that something like 200 pages in the book actually go through the history of economics, which I will not do or you will fall asleep, <laughs> and my pinched nerve will get worse. Um, but just to say, I'm gonna kind of speed on towards modern times, that this whole question that I'm kind of raising, how do we talk about value? Why do we say that Goldman Sachs workers are so productive? Who then is so unproductive, and with what sort of basis? Those stories and those theories have fundamentally changed, actually, in the last 400 years. And by the way, it's quite sad, most economic students, are there any economic students in the room? Few, okay, not many. Um, you might be an exception, but at least my experience is that there's very few economics departments that even kind of go through this, kind of go through the history of economic thought, unpinning the, again, assumptions and, th and the theories about value. So people today who are just reading kind of modern neoclassical uh, theory through, let's, I'll quickly go through the marginal revolution economics, don't even know the history of their own theory, who the first writers were, what they were saying, what kind of value assumptions there were, let alone the different theories before them. Um, and it's important, actually, because it's quite striking that, and, and I'm, I'm going to make this incredibly simplistic, so forgive me, especially those who know what I'm talking about. For those who don't, I can say anything, just believe me, uh, uh, that these ideas of where value came from was very much tied, of course, to what was going on in that period as well, not only. There was also then particular attempts, not so much conspiracy, but particular attempts, if you want to change how things were going and certain debates just closing down. But it was also fundamentally tied to what was going on. So in the 1600s, um, there were the mercantilists who put a lot of emphasis on terms of trade uh, because they actually believed that different types of exchange and how exchange itself was formulated, determined, if you want, the value that was produced. This was the era of the 1651 Navigation Acts, right? This is actually the era that Trump is bringing us back to, where he thinks that you know, it's all about uh, trade and how you structure trade and who's screwing who and how to actually make it so America is going to be the greatest because it puts up tariffs. That kind of brings us back to that period, just to show you how modern that guy is. Um, the physiocrats in the 1700s, they, uh, again, excuse the simplicity, put very much the focus about value on farming, farm labor. And they were very concerned with this issue that if farmers are actually producing value from the land, this is agricultural pre-industrial revolution period, then we better make sure that that value then isn't sucked out of the system, say, by the kings or the landlords. And they were actually, I'll come back to the slide in a minute, the first to sort of come up with what kind of looks like an Excel spreadsheet back in the 1700s 
this is my rendition of um, Canet's Tableau Economique, where he has the productive class, who are basically the farmers, the proprietors, who were the landlords, and the sterile class, who are just the, mercantil the, the, the merchants selling stuff in stores. And he, had, he and Canet, uh, sorry, and Turgot and others in that period always kind of made these calculations. Well, what's going to happen if actually too much goes to the proprietors or too much goes to the sterile class in terms of the system being able to reproduce itself? Um, very interesting work. So, and then the classical, so people like Adam Smith, David Ricardo, Karl Marx, put instead the emphasis on labor, literally actually labor in industrial production, mainly in factories, not only, and again, not a surprise given that this was happening during the Industrial Revolution. And it was actually quite um, funny, at least Adam Smith, if you read his works, um, well, first of all, it's very clear, you know, there's one sort of labor which adds value to the subject upon which it's bestowed, and another which has no such effect. The former, as it produces value, may be called productive, the latter unproductive, right? So again, Blankfein's quote, the Goldman Sachs are the most productive. These kind of claims that some are productive, some are not, goes back a long way, but the classicals also had a very strong theory about this. And, it, and the reason I said it was funny is because if you read Smith, he just kind of makes lists of people who he thinks are pretty unproductive. So he must have had an extremely bad time at the opera because both opera singers and opera dancers are unproductive and these damn musicians. But basically everyone in this room, I hate to tell you, in his view would be unproductive. So churchmen, actually there was one. Where was the guy who told me he learned? He left, oh, he left, too bad. Uh, he said he was, anyway, lawyers, I'm sure some of you study law, physicians, doctors, men of letters of all kind, that's us, right, we're, we're intellectuals, completely unproductive, players, buffoons, etc. So, you know, a list, which, which was interesting because actually Marx was much more refined. People like to pretend that Marx was really kind of deterministic, but he was much more refined than Adam Smith because he said it's, it's not about sort of who you are, but what you're doing in that process if you're actually contributing to the production of surplus value. Again, I don't have time to go into this here, but Marx's whole theory of exploitation and the production of surplus value being essential to that in terms of how labor is exploited by capital. He looked, he thought very critically actually of modern day problems like this idea that the robots are gonna take all our jobs. He didn't put it like that. He said, well, what's gonna happen when mechanization, which we today basically call the robots are coming, uh, to the capital labor relationship, and if actually exploitation, uh, which I'm sure you guys have heard this concept of that, is the key driver of what produces profits and surplus value in the economy. If then we get rid of labor, then there's no, no one to exploit, the system is gonna fall apart. Anyway, questions like that, forget whether the system does or doesn't fall apart. His, his questions were very interesting. And by the way, I'll just say this because I think it's important and I'm sure I'll forget to say it if I don't say it now. This question about the robots are coming is quite interesting because David Ricardo, the other classical economist that I mentioned, he already, back in 1821, was asking that question. So he wrote a book called Principles of Political Economy, the first economics textbook, basically. Um, and chapter 31, uh, called On Machinery, was all about, we're in trouble. <laughs> we are in big trouble. All these machines, which again, robots today, they're taking jobs, they're reducing wages, you know, what's gonna happen? And he examined that through his analysis and made different kinds of predictions, which then Marx also built on. But what then actually happened for 200 years, basically up until the 1980s, was it didn't matter. Machines did take jobs. Just think of you know, mass production, obviously took huge amounts of jobs, at least in the craft areas. Um, but then the profits being earned, say by production of machine A, were reinvested somewhere else in the economy. So actually new jobs were formed. It didn't matter actually that mechanization was taking away jobs 
because money was circulating back into the economy. And what I would argue, and I'll quickly mention this at the end, um, is that in fact financialization, which is this issue I've already mentioned briefly, when profits no longer are used to be reinvested in the economy, but in areas like share buybacks, just to boost stock prices, stock options, and executive pay, that's the problem. Because skills, worker skills, as well as jobs, are actually endogenous effects of investment, not just from government training programs, but business actually investing. Businesses used to invest quite a bit in human capital, in, um, you know, back into the workforce, um, and the profits themselves back into production, whether it was in innovation, new factory equipment, et cetera. This extreme financialization of the economy, which has two faces, finance, financing, finance, which I mentioned before, but also companies using their profits not to reinvest in R&D and human capital, but just in buying back their shares, that's when we get a problem. And so rather than you know, uh, a, a problem in terms of regeneration of jobs and skills, et cetera, in terms of workers' ability to deal with the next kind of wave of uh, innovation, and yet that, that's kind of ignored. But anyway, just to say that this period was actually really interesting in classical economic uh, theory because they were very much asking these questions, but tying it back to the understanding of where they thought value came from. Whereas today, when we talk about the robots, it's kind of just like, oh, God, scary. Oh, my God, robots are taking jobs in this area. We better be careful and you know, either help workers or make sure that we're creating jobs in another area, et cetera. It's not tied to how we understand the economic system is reproducing itself. And Adam Smith, was, this is a really great quote because um, rent, right? Rent seen as uh, an income source uh, different from, say, profits, interest, and wages, or interest is actually, in, in many ways, part of rent, uh, seen as kind of robbery, so unearned income, versus an imperfection towards a competitive price that you can sort of you know, get rid of that imperfection, monopoly power or something, but it's unearned income, his idea that some are producing, forget the fact he had this really deterministic, funny list, and some are not producing, and some of these not producers are just kind of moving money around, doing very little, and yet making money. This is actually a concept which was very strong in classical political economy, and I think it's, it's missing today, because we see rent simply as an imperfection. Again, I'll come back to that. So the implications from the classicals, who I really think were, in some ways, forget whether this is good or bad. This isn't a normative point I'm making. It's not like, oh, they had the right theory of value. No, but it was very intense, their debate about value. Some very strong, um, if you want, implications of their theory was, first of all, a strong relationship between value, prices, and income tied actually to objective conditions of production. Division of labor. If you read Adam Smith, it's all about the pin factory and the division of labor uh, you know, increasing the productivity in the economy because you no longer have one person making the whole pin, but it was divided between lots of different tasks, and he looked at the relationship of that objective change in how factories were set up, how manufacturing was organized through this increased division of labor with creation of wealth, creation ability of an economy to, say, beat another economy depending on how it actually invested in those processes of technology and division of labor. Um, so very strong relationship between value and objective production conditions, which change. I don't think of, oh, they're deterministic. You know, production conditions are constantly changing because of innovation, so it's also a dynamic theory. Uh, relationship between production and income is mediated also, also through power issues. So they didn't talk about wages being functions of, say, preferences of leisure versus work, which I'll tell you in a minute is, is key to neoclassical theory of wages, but wages were very much uh, 
uh, functions of also the class struggle, which itself is also an objective condition. It's a social condition, but it's objective. There's a class struggle. You have trade unions. You have some with stronger or lower bargaining power. Um, so, and the ability of, if you want capital, to exploit labor. In Marxist theory, it was tied to particular types of conditions of production, who owns the means of production, for example. They focus on the reproduction of the system. So that example I just gave you of their worry about the robots of the time, what's going to happen when you know, all, all labor is replaced by robots in terms of not being able to extract surplus value and hence the system not reproducing itself. So very much focus on the system's ability to reproduce. It's really hot in here. You guys are all going to fall asleep very soon, but I'll have to snap my fingers like I do with my kids to <laughs> make you listen. Um, and the last, which I already mentioned, rent was about unearned income, you know, literally robbery in terms of how um, Smith talked about it. Um, and the big neoclassical revolution, just coming back to that first slide where I had, you know, trade, farming, uh, industry, labor, uh, and, and then I had preferences. So I'm not going to go back five slides to show you that. This focus then on preferences and supply and demand curves, which you'll have, you know, come across that term, even without having studied economics, um, that somehow those types of interactions, you have suppliers making stuff, then people want stuff, and where those two curves meet, that determines prices, and then that determines how things are exchanged, and that determines the value that an economy produces, and it, it determines what we include in GDP, because we include things with prices. This was a huge revolution. So to put it really bluntly and simplistically, we went from a system of thinking uh, where there was theories of value that determined theories of price. So again, if you look at the uh, classical economists, they very much then tied their understanding of value to theories of prices to the opposite, the theory of price, okay, based on marginal utility curves and preferences, supply and demand curves, determines value. So again, the really obvious way is what is included in GDP. We include it not because it's valuable, not because we say, oh, this stuff is really important, care or you know, hospital work or uh, the social fabric of society and all the things that are needed in order to produce that. We're going to put that into our understanding of, of wealth. But you know, if something has a price, whether it's a hedge fund, whether it's a, a, a nurse's salary, uh, whether it's you know, whatever, it has to have a price in order to include it. There's no sort of value judgment of who's valuable, who's not. Um, but I'll get to that later. Um, the price of the commodity is determined by marginal utility, given by the last item sold because competition levels prices. This will come back to their notion of value. I'm, I'm not going to read all this. I've already told you the big point I want to make is this kind of huge revolution from value to price to price to value. Um, and also very strong link, again, with income. So J.B. Clark, one of the first uh, neoclassical economists, the distribution of the income of society is controlled by a natural law. This law, if it worked without friction, so if you had sort of perfect competition, which we know we don't have, there's imperfections in the system, of course you would agree with that, would give to every agent of production the amount of wealth which that agent actually creates, right? So um, because of this kind of natural law of supply and demand where also wages themselves are seen as, um, as uh, uh, results of that. So class struggle disappears. Wages, again, are tied to preferences versus leisure. Uh, preferences for leisure versus work. Prices reveal value. I earn a lot. I must be productive. Coming back to my brother's comment about academics, I must be stupid. They're not earning as much as bankers. Um, rent's no longer about unearned income, as it was very clear in Adam Smith. Rent is robbery, but some sort of asymmetry, which you can compete away, some sort of maybe temporary monopoly power. 
but it wasn't about, hey, these guys, what the hell are you doing? You're earning all that money, what are you actually doing? Just moving stuff around? That sort of concept doesn't exist. Um, and so, as I said, what then the objective of, of my book was, was actually then to go sector by sector by sector in a very practical way, pharmaceutical industry, big tech, so the whole Facebook, Uber, Amazon economy, government, um, how it thinks its role is, by kind of unpicking you know, what actually happens when economic theory no longer puts this concept of value, and I should say the debate about value, because that's what I focus on. There's no debate about value. It's just been captured. And we don't even use the word value. If you study microeconomics 101 in any department, they're not going to say, OK, now we're going to present to you our theory of value. OK, listen to this. This is a really smart theory. No, they just teach you the production function and how different uh, uh, prices are set in different parts of the economy from labor markets, etc. It's not seen as a particular theory that you might want to debate with. There's one theory that's taught, that's it. And this, by the way, is one of the weaknesses, I think, of the current rethinking economics movement, at least the one I've been exposed to. There's probably, I'm sure, bits out there that I haven't been exposed enough to, that there's not enough attention on this. There's a bit too much attention on making current economics a bit more user-friendly. So this idea, oh, there's too much math, get rid of the math. Well, yeah, there might be too much math, and that is kind of sucks in some ways because people don't can't really engage with it. But the real problem is which math they're using. Um, and in fact, this notion that you have unique equilibria, you know, again, determined by supply and demand, you have average representative agents actually makes neoclassical economics use math from Newtonian physics, right? So all about centers of gravity, averages mattering, unique equilibria. You, there's other math that could be used, for example, from biology, and some of us have been using in looking at innovation and evolutionary and complexity dynamics math from different fields. So this notion that, oh, economics kind of, oof, it's a bit too hard and we need to make it easier and use it to understand gender and racial issues and inequality and make it easier so take out the math is actually quite dangerous because by making something problematic, and there are some problematic assumptions that I just mentioned, even easier to sell, I don't know, it, you know if that's the real challenge. Just, anyway, there are all parts of, the, I'm sure, we think economics movement that are also thinking about these value issues, but that would definitely be my advice to focus as much as possible on that, because that's one of the biggest assumptions um, of, of neoclassical economics, that is actually prices that determine value, versus having to rethink that. And anyway, I put here again Lloyd Blankfein's great quote, and so the idea is that when we no longer have a contested debate, when value is so easily used in those different ways that I mentioned, value chains, value-based pricing, shareholder value, you get a real confusion. Well, who's productive, who's not? And it's not about going back to Adam Smith's list, you're productive, you're not, doctor, lawyer, you know, whatever, but at least an, an understanding of what we think produces value and then make those value judgments. Um, so what I'm going to do is go quickly through implications of this. Um, and those implications are how we do GDP, which in some ways I already said, how we think about corporate governance, how we think about prices of really essential things like drugs, um, how the debate out there today around big data and privacy, um, and how we think about government. And literally there's only one slide for each, and I have still 15 minutes, so it'll be plenty. Um, <laughs> So first of all, GDP, as I mentioned, is quite striking. And, and I mean, there's a big debate about this, so it's not like I'm the first to say this, but that we sort of got into the situation where just because things have prices, we put them in. Because of course, you have the problem then that some things don't have a price, but they're hugely valuable, like the work that you know, mothers and other uh, carers do in the house. Um, and other ones that do have prices, but are incredibly unvaluable, like when pollution occurs, 
GDP doesn't go down, it only goes up when pollution occurs because someone has to clean it. Right? So somehow we have this system where we've convinced ourselves that prices are really important and so we put into our measures of wealth things that have prices and you get into that confusion. So if you marry someone who's cleaning your house, uh, then GDP falls because they're probably still going to clean your house, you're just not paying them. Right? So these kind of absurd situations. That stuff's already been written about. Right? So there's lots of feminist econ economists and environmental economists who've kind of made those points, how we should include environmental and care issues in the economy. Now, I think what's less known is um, other deformations of this. So when financial intermediation as part of the economy started to grow massively with this kind of era of financialization, which I talk about in the book, I kind of go through the whole history, this sector of the economy that until then had not actually gone into GDP because things like net interest payments, how much a, a, a bank makes from the difference between the interest it charges and the interest it makes on a loan, that wasn't included, kind of. I mean, they didn't say it, but because it was basically just seen as a transfer of existing money, just like social security, social payments aren't included in GDP because it's existing money that's just redistributed in the same way bank net interest payments weren't included until they were like, oh my god, this thing is growing, like hugely. So this first graph here comes from the Bank of England. It's some work that Danny, um, Andy Haldane did where that lighter curve there shows the uh, percentage of the economy made up of financial intermediation in terms of, sorry, the growth of financial intermediation versus the rest of the economy, so everything but agriculture and, and finance, basically. So you see it's completely outpacing it. Um, and what was interesting was that at the time, the, the, what was it called, the Systems of National Accounts, the SNA, which was initially inside the United Nations, they said, we, we got to start counting this thing, it's huge. And it was quite curious that instead of saying what's valuable and let's put it in GDP, they said this thing is growing, we don't have a price for it, let's call it something. So they ended up calling what commercial banks were doing as financial intermediation, so they could include it in national income and product accounting as the service being provided was financial intermediation, and investment banks, the service they were providing in national income and product accounting, NEPA, that's how they call it in the US, was risk-taking, right? Until, of course, things go bad and this risk they took has to be bailed out by people like you, but still, we, you know, they called it that. So that's an example of a huge problem that occurs that of this kind of reverse thinking, right? This thing is growing, we better give it a price, give it a name, and then include it in GDP versus actually thinking, what's going on with the economy? So if you read people like uh, Minsky, Hyman Minsky, he started to look at this kind of data and talked about money manager capitalism, where instead of money being there, if you want just to facilitate exchange, money, and this is something uh, Marx had already said, money sort of at the beginning, commodities are in the middle, and then more money's at the end, so MCM prime is what uh, Marx called it. But anyway, this kind of financial, that capitalism was fundamentally a financial system driven by needs to increase profits through, through accumulation, but how the financial system itself interacted with the economy was not very well understood. So even when it was growing because of these dysfunctional dynamics that Minsky especially, as well as John Maynard Keynes explained very well, um, the idea was simply we better you know, put a price to it. Um, and it was quite interesting that the financial corporate profits as a share of domestic total profits, so just how much the sector also could grow. Think of J.B. Clark's quote, kind of linking you know, productivity and production and who's valuable with profits was you know, analogous. So how if you start calling something uh, important, you find a way to also include it in how you think of it in terms of product productiveness and profits. Um, it also affected massively 
how we think of corporate governance. So this, this critique that I said has been out there for quite a long time, that there's too much short-termism and speculation, um, people like John Kay and others who've written against that, saying we need to reform capitalism, it's too speculative, we need to do things like uh, think how to get finance actually to do useful things, but also limit things like share buybacks, it, it hasn't changed. And I think this is because the ideas of corporate governance and the ideas of why it's good to maximize shareholder value, which some have critiqued, hasn't really been debunked. And so you do have people critiquing it, even Jack Welch, former CEO of General Electric, saying this is the stupidest thing ever. Why did we think this was gonna make the economy grow? It actually extracts value from the economy. So shareholder value is the dumbest idea in the world, but it fundamentally transformed how uh, companies actually use their profits. So over, in some cases, over 100%, this is Microsoft, by the way, 100% of net income being used on, a, on, on the combination of share buybacks and dividends, right? Um, very high. Cisco, extremely high. Amgen, Pfizer, very high. So, and people have critiqued it. And it's not, it's okay to do some share buybacks. There's reasons to do it. But the extent to which this lack of reinvestment back into the system is actually founded on a story, right? And this is where the lies, again, come in. So if, if, if you read the fundamental texts about maximizing shareholder value by people like Michael Jensen, um, there's this idea that shareholders are the biggest risk takers. And risk is like a good thing, right? In capitalism, we have to invest, and you never know what the, what the uh, profitability might be of your investments. If you don't have risk taking, you get a static economy, and people use that to say why the US is you know, better than Europe, you have more risk takers, more entrepreneurs, blah, blah, blah. But if you actually look at the theory, what it says is that shareholders are the, you get this word, it's like a really weird word, residual claimants. So residual meaning what's left over. Okay, so everyone else in this theory has a guaranteed income, right? So workers have their salary. They're not taking risks. They got their salary. They sign a contract. They get what they get. Uh, a bank gives you a loan. They get that interest payment. They're not taking risks. I mean, they might take a risk. You might not pay it back, but you know, it's kind of guaranteed. Um, and only once everyone's been paid this guaranteed rate of return, if there's something left over, that residual, that goes to the shareholder. So by definition, they took a huge risk of getting nothing. And if you think about the massive booty amount that's left over actually at the end of the big uh, recent revolutions in technology, uh, which currently is actually happening in the clean tech sector, um, but you know, the biotech revolution, the nanotech revolution, the digital revolution, there's lots of money left over. This idea that actually was the shareholders who took the biggest risk also justified this idea that maximizing shareholder value is a good thing because you're maximizing the returns to those that are actually really important in terms of taking risks. And it's a lie. I mean, I'll finally start using this word every now and then. I'll probably use it twice. Um, workers have a guaranteed rate of return? Of course not. When you take a job, especially nowadays in the sort of last 40 years, there's no guaranteed uh, job kind of you know, ladder there. So you might take a, a lower salary thinking that you have some sort of guaranteed job, but of course you don't. You can be fired and you've taken a risk by actually taking part of a company, putting an effort and maybe having no future in that company. Government, guaranteed rate of return? I don't think so. All of you have stuff in your iPhones, which were government finance, internet, GPS, Siri, uh, touchscreen display. That was what my previous book was about, entrepreneurial state all government financed, for each of those technologies, there was failures that the government had to take. Just recently, Tesla got a 465 million guaranteed loan from the Department of Energy. Solyndra got just a bit above that. Solyndra, massive failure, Tesla success. Government took the risk there, had to 
bail out the, uh, the failure, as well as the whole banking system when it fell. Anyway, so this notion that only the shareholders are the biggest risk takers is actually underpinning this idea of corporate governance being better driven by shareholder value instead of things like stakeholder value, which is much more participatory and collective idea of value in places like uh, Scandinavia. And this has been absolutely related to these huge trends um, across most Anglo-Saxon type economies or those uh, you know, global economies that are following this kind of financialized way. This is um, US data, the percentage of cash flows returned to shareholders as opposed to reinvested, massive increase. And the CEO to worker compensation ratio in the US as well, very much affected by that for reasons I already said. Buy back your shares, that boosts stock options, that's the main way that big CEOs are paid. Um, and in fact, the profit wage relationship, so the labor share of GDP, the labor share is at its lowest level. So the profit wage relationship is at the highest level and it's very much tied to these structural conditions. Um, these very high pharmaceutical prices, which people have critiqued, so this is the cure, uh, this for 12 weeks of a hepatitis C. Uh, drug and people have been like, this is terrible. You know, patients, uh, pe you know, people are dying not because they're sick, but they can't afford these crazy prices. And then in countries with proper welfare states, you have to have kind of state government money having to bring down those prices, subsidize the pharmaceutical industry instead of using you know public money actually for care. And um, the pharmaceutical industry justified it initially, saying, well, of course we should charge those high prices. We've invested all this money, huge amounts. They say one billion dollars per drug. And when that was shown to be a lie, second time I've used that, good, <laughs> sticking to the theme. Um, in other words, that actually most of the research behind new molecular entities with priority rating, these are the really revolutionary drugs that have mattered, 75% of that funding has actually come from government. So in the US, very active national institutes of health financing, in this country, MRC, Welcome Trust increasingly, but universities spending huge amounts of money on that kind of research. So it's not true that it was just pharma, it was also other important actors, especially in that early uncertain phase, they had to come up with another reason. They said, oh, fine, yeah, okay, they found us out, let's come up with another lie. Uh, Value-based pricing. And this is beautiful, actually. It's the perfect depiction of this revolution that I talked about. Instead of going from value to price, you go from price to value. So the idea is, okay, we can no longer say it's because of these high R&D costs, because they kind of you know, figured out that we were a player, but not the player. Um, it's the perception of how much you value a drug. So if you have a very sick kid, how much do you actually value having that medicine over not having it? And they make these crazy calculations about it. And in my case, I got four kids, I can tell you, it's infinity. I would do anything. I would prostitute myself in order to uh, you know, pay for, a, I would, all of you would. You know, if your kid is dying, you can't buy the medicine, you would do some crazy things. And if it, the price is really high, you'll do anything to pay that price. But often, again, it's the state that has to come in, or you literally don't get the medicine. People do die or don't get treated, get sicker and sicker because they don't have the price. So this notion of value-based price, and if you actually look at it, it actually goes back directly to this idea that value is in the eye of the beholder. It's about preferences. And so Goldman Sachs very wisely once said, you know, is curing patients a sustainable business model? Well, of course not. We're actually, you know, the way that drug companies make money is through the drugs. Perhaps they need to rethink how they talk about themselves because if you actually cure people, your profits fall. Um, platform capitalism. Um, so this is, I think, uh, I recently wrote an article, if you're interested in this, just last week, called Turning Private Data into a Public Good, um, an MIT tech review, it's free online, about this whole issue. 
But this is another area where, again, the stories that we tell about where tech came from, where did big data come from, where did AI come from, is very problematic. So government's always just catching up, like through GDPR and other types of policies. You know, we have to regulate the tech companies. We have to uh, uh, intervene in the system. And just setting up the problem like that, of course we should regulate it, but why are we even calling it regulating the tech companies? This idea that if the, the companies that have produced the technology, when most of these companies are actually media companies, if you really think what they do, they're really not tech companies. And the few that are really tech companies, most of that technology, in fact, has been, you know, has come from a, a much more collective effort than themselves. So the kind of policies we're thinking about today shouldn't be framed in this kind of catch-up mode. You're just trying to catch up to this great wealth creation process, and then you get seen as a, you know, that you don't like innovation if you don't like Uber. You must be like the black cabbies that are just resisting it versus actually really trying to understand, well, how has Uber or companies like Uber really benefited from this thing called platform capitalism, which is very much driven both by publicly funded technology, but also data, which is in the public domain. And if we actually thought about this a bit more wisely, we might think of you know, very different types of solutions to the problems, like creating some sort of a public repository of the data in the interests of the public and the companies, these tech companies would have to pay into uh, this repository in order to access that data. And of course, under very strict conditions that would be required in order to make sure that we're actually achieving public goods and public value. But again, it's very hard to talk about things like that if it's presented like the tech companies, the cool guys being regulated by these boring, nice, well-meaning social democrats in government. Um, so really kind of, again, debunking some of the ways that we talk about that. And this brings me to the last kind of implication, which is unproductive government, right? We just don't think, as I said before, that government creates value. At best, it redistributes it through taxation. At best, it de-risks, it facilitates, it enables. You kind of want to fall asleep as you're saying those words. Um, and in fact, in GDP itself, it's impossible for government, literally, technically, to show itself as being productive in this arrogant way that, you know, Blankfein said, we're the most productive. Because, um, in fact, uh, we only really include the costs. So you include the salaries of the teachers, the costs of the desks in the classrooms, but not the value that's actually created by having a really educated workforce, um, which is, in fact, the whole point of having government funding education, right? Um, and so we're just looking at the costs, whereas with, um, with uh, uh, privately funded uh, uh, goods, you look at the actual value that's produced, the car, the price of the car. Um, and this contributes to the myth that government's only facilitating the creation of value rather than being one of the lead players. I would never say they're the only player, but I just gave you many examples where it's been the investor first resort. Um, and this, in fact, affects how we view government, how it behaves, how it usually can get outsourced to those who we think are the real producers of value. Just think of everything that's happening in the UK government with G4S and Serco actually running public services. It almost becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. You think government's so rubbish, you don't fund it properly, you describe it as an impediment. David Cameron, his first week in office, said civil servants are the enemies of enterprise. Surprise, surprise, people start kind of not wanting to be a civil servant. They kind of prefer to go in Google or Tech City or whatever. And so this assumption that all the cool stuff and value creation is here and you know the paperwork, yeah. You know, even progressive talk like this. As I said, the Labor Party said we lost because we didn't embrace these guys. Of course, the Labor Party cares about regulation and labor, et cetera, but the, the term wealth and value is, is about that side. And so that was that previous book I wrote, which I always show it because I love the German translation. Das Kapital. This, that. So the capital of the state, this complete you know, misunderstanding about government as simply being the state doing stuff 
that's just kind of creating basic conditions for value being created in business. And so the key point of that was to say, well, let's actually look at, you know, from solar energy, wind energy, big revolutions in aerospace, et cetera, and every single thing in your smart products, literally almost every technology inside, I've already mentioned internet, Siri, touchscreen, GPS, blah, 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 funded by different types of public institutions that are just not understood. Think of the BBC, the value that the BBC provides in this country in terms of the investments it's made that it continues to make actually fall outside of the way that economists understand the role of the public as just fixing a public good problem. So they get told every time there's a charter review, oh, please go back to just doing what government's allowed to do, which is mm, documentaries about giraffes, that's okay. Uh, high quality world news, that's okay. Soap operas, talk shows, uh-uh, that's for business. Whereas, you know, again, coming back to this notion I said at the beginning, markets and value, so value is collectively created. Markets themselves, literally the free market, which Adam Smith meant free from rent, which maybe we can come back to in the discussion, but even the notion of the market and capitalism came from huge investments and in regulation by government. So the work on that, I encourage you to read Karl Polanyi if you haven't, The Great Transformation. Um, and so really kind of fundamentally changing how we think about value as collectively created by many different actors um, as opposed to it just being inside the production function and business and all these other things sort of happening on the side is fundamental for thinking about digital capitalism today and how to really shape that system so it meets kind of public objectives versus just uh, you know, socialized risks and privatized returns. And that brings me to this, which is this whole issue of distribution. So if it's true that the internet was funded with public money, as is most of clean technology today, which is now being invested in by the private sector, but even fracking, which is not exactly clean, but it's something that the US invested in massively in order to find new energy opportunities was funded by the taxpayer, or let's just say public money, because there's a whole theory of where money comes from, just say public money, um, and that, you know, could we think of a better system instead of the system where huge amounts of money went into Silicon Valley and then you look at the public school system there, pretty crappy. Um, and so, you know, you do have some wonderful quotes by people like Gates and Warren Buffett saying, yep, I would never have made the money I did without this massive collective investment in the infrastructure and the technology, but this isn't understood. It doesn't actually then shape how we think about the economy and our theory of value. Um, and so, sorry, these are just two great quotes. So society is responsible for a very significant percentage of what I've earned. Thank you very much. That's why he says, stop reducing my capital gains tax. I'm happy to pay back into this great system, which has helped me make money. Bill Gates, actually, a funny story. He actually wrote to me. This is my name dropping part. And I ignored his emails because I'm like, that's like a hacker, right? Bill Gates doesn't, I was like, that's some Microsoft weirdo. Until his PA is like, could you please respond to his emails? He's not used to this. I was like, oh my God, it's Bill Gates. So he invited me out to Silicon, no, Seattle, and I spent six hours with him. And he said, yep, read your book, totally true. Steve and I, Steve Jobs, we, we surfed the wave of government investments. And I am very interested, he, in the Green Revolution, and uh, we need that same kind of lead investor first resort role, but I don't see it, he said. There's all this, you know, not just austerity, but government actually kind of clawing back and spending money, but not ambitiously, as they did, say, with the Moonshot program. Um, and it was very interesting, because then he sets up a philanthropy and is funding all sorts of things, not just in the health area, but also in renewables. But you've got to kind of think of that system, which I, I tried to say this politely to him. I was like, let me get this straight. So you have this really kind of dysfunctional corporate governance model, again, Microsoft being one of the most financialized, making huge cash piles, uh, also avoiding tax, as many of these companies do, not evading, avoiding, 
through legally, right? We know this happens, it's not me. Read any paper, we'll tell you that. Um, and then using this huge cash to boop, put in a philanthropy, which then spends on doing good, but who decides what is good, right? So I asked him about what he thought was good in the renewable energy space, and having been the daughter of a nuclear fusion scientist who's dedicated his whole life to fusion, when I heard he's very interested in garage experiments on fusion, I was like, hmm, interesting. Um, and, and other areas, which may be fine, but you know, is it really billionaires who should be directing science money, which is actually what happened in the, mid, in the Middle Ages, right? That was the kings decided, the arts, which arts, think of the, the oligarchs today in Russia, think of the wife of uh, Abramovich, right? She opened a gallery in Moscow, which is actually quite a nice gallery, but still, is that how we want to fund art? Through oligarchs' money to do good. So anyway, there's a huge questionable issue here. So even though it's great to say this stuff, how it then translates to how we really restructure the system, very problematic. As I already mentioned, huge increase in inequality since the 1970s has actually been fueled by the lack of stories or admission about this. So this is exactly that period where capital gains, again, falls by 50%, and Warren Buffett's like, can you stop now? I don't care. Your reductions of my capital gains only increase unemployment. It doesn't affect my investment. I don't need you to reduce it, right? But again, these stories that I mentioned at the beginning being very much um, there. And so lastly, in my last uh, five minutes, um, what to do? You know, if, if this was just, oh, God, terrible. There's no theory of value. Let's just go back to the labor theory of value. That would be a stupid conclusion as it would be, I think, not a very smart one to say, oh, these terrible financial guys, they're bad, and somehow we have to go to productive capitalism, right? So coming back, actually, to this idea that maybe we just need a new understanding of how to structure a system, which will be debated. There's no, like, one, you know, how do you say, list of who's productive, who's not, but how do you actually structure a system so we're really rewarding those kinds of behaviors in business or in other organizations that are actually bringing us closer to something that we democratically, in a country where we have democracies, decide through also movements, social movements, but also debates in parliament of what kind of society we want. So if we want the green economy, we're gonna have to think very cl clearly about corporate governance models, what kind of policies can co-create and co-shape, not just intervene with a tax, you know, carbon tax, but really co-create and co-shape actively the value that we want in a, in, a, in a green economy. So first, admitting value is collectively produced. Second, that means we better socialize not just the risks by all these different actors, but also the rewards. How do you do that? I mentioned some ideas around uh, even with the digital you know, uh, platforms, um, but you can also do it through equity. There's no reason, to be honest, that the government shouldn't have retained some equity in Tesla. Uh, what Obama did was the opposite. He said, if you don't pay back the loan, I'm really smart, I have all these Goldman Sachs guys in my government, which he did, and I'm gonna get three million shares, the government, in your company if you don't pay back the loan. It's like, why would you want three million shares in a crappy company that doesn't pay back the loan? Had he said, we get three million shares in your company if you do pay back the loan and you're successful, the price per share went from nine to 90 between 2009, 2013, multiply that by three million, that would have more than paid back the loss that the government made from Solyndra, the solar company that went bust. But because we don't think of the government as having co-created the Tesla kind of uh, investment, then you don't even ask the question, should it retain some sort of equity? Because it's seen just as an enabler sitting on the side when things go bad, you bail out the banks, you bail out Solyndra. When things go well, here Elon Musk, you're you know, again the new hero. And I'm sure he's really smart, but this narrative has to be changed in order to uh, uh, change the system. 
And we should, as you know, not in as a, you know, not in this listy way as Adam Smith did, who's productive, who's not, but steer activities inside this production boundary that I had in the beginning, right? The productive, unproductive. Instead of calling finance a bunch of value extractors, what can we really do through things like the financial transaction tax and other? There's lots of policies out there that have thought about this but have not been successful, some have, to really steer finance to actually be doing what we might think is valuable. So recently I helped Nicola Sturgeon set up a public bank in Scotland and, said, and the first thing I said, okay, good, this is good, you know, long-term patient finance, but this is not about handouts to sectors that just make them more profitable and then they don't invest. Profits are very high, investment is not. We should be perhaps a mission-oriented bank, which you and society in Scotland decide through your processes of engagement with civil society and parliament, et cetera, decide what you think is really important for your country in terms of problems that need to be solved, and you can pick the willing through the bank, not pick winners, don't pick a sector, don't pick SMEs. You say, who wants to help us solve this really important health challenge or digital you know, capabilities in uh, low-income communities, new sort of apps in that area or whatever, and you lend the money to those actors, different organizations that are willing to engage with societal set missions. Um, Definancializing the real economy, huge problem in some countries, Delinking things like you know human rights, prices, you know drugs are actually human rights. You, if you don't get medicine, you die. So delinking drug prices from this perceived value through value-based pricing is just an obvious thing. This is kind of a micro point. But you know having ambitious public policy to co-create value through this notion of public purpose, which in our institute we're really trying to revive that concept theoretically and also practically. But you know if, if you want a caring economy, if you want a greener economy, if you want a circular economy, all these words. You have to actively co-shape that. And if you don't, you get in trouble. You just fund, you fund stuff, and it comes back sort of to bite you, as has happened with, um, I think, the digital space. Um, as well as these better deals, as I mentioned, you know, between different actors. So currently, Novartis is working for free on the International Space Station and patenting. That's not a very good deal. Um, for the public, which gives out a patent. Uh, patents are 20-year monopolies. So you get monopoly profits for 20 years. Um, if you're going to patent, then it better not be in a publicly funded infrastructure, or if you are, make them pay to use that publicly funded infrastructure. And it's not rocket science, literally, in space. Uh, sorry. Um, and you know, maybe conditions on reinvestment. That's actually where Bell Labs came from. Bell Labs, you might know, is one of the most innovative experiments worldwide in terms of a private company setting up a lab in AT&T, extremely innovative. It came from government forcing AT&T at the time to reinvest its profits in order to retain its monopoly, which was not God-granted, but government-granted. They have to reinvest profits into the real economy, innovation, big innovation. Answer was Bell Labs. Capping prices, drug prices, of course, should represent also, uh, you know, they, they should, I think, just be delinked from costs and based on other things, but that's a whole other conversation. But at least if you are gonna base it on costs, then make sure you know who actually paid for it. Um, so the Bay-Dole Act, which allowed publicly funded research to be patented back in the 80s, actually says that. We better make sure the taxpayer doesn't pay twice, but they never enacted or exercised the right that in the act it says government should have to set, or not set prices, but to have marching rights, so capping rights on drugs, because the narrative, the stories, the lies are so strong that government doesn't feel the power the confidence to say, oh God, you know, hepatitis C, well we funded it basically, of course it shouldn't cost 94,000 a week for that cure. So these narratives are so strong in that way that Plato talked about. We have income contingent loan for students, why not for companies? It's very rare actually to have income contingent loans for companies. Um, 
I already mentioned the equity, et cetera. So this for me was very important in this institute, which is actually a department. We have our own teaching program. We've just been set up. We have a course called Rethinking Capitalism, which will start in um, January next year, and a master's in public administration where we're hoping to make the word bureaucracy the sexiest word around. Um, we will do it. So kind of taking out the kind of public choice theory, new public management domination of what we think the state is for to actually this co-creation co-shaping role where business together with policy, together with civil society organizations really thinks about the next big wave of innovation, how to create, nurture, and evaluate this word public value, which is not even a word in economics. You know, the BBC, again, debates it. It's not a word. We talk about the public good, but it's a very narrow little thing that if you do anything beyond that, you're accused of crowding out. And recently, just in a very practical way, I worked with the European Commission and now with the UK government on this issue of purpose purpose-driven innovation. You don't just fund medical research and hope for the best. You don't just give money to clean tech and hope for the best. You really set up your whole way of thinking of policy in the way that we did with the moonshot, right? There was a big challenge, which was a space race. They turned it into a really ambitious moonshot, which was going to the moon and back again in a generation. Required lots of different sectors to invest, and they were not just given money to do anything, but conditional on helping that happened because you had to also change clothing. You couldn't go up there in jeans and a t-shirt. So investment in textiles and lots of bottom-up projects. So this concept of missions is now being used in public purpose and these conditional you know, investments. So you don't just do handouts. So even a public bank, what does it mean to have it be mission-oriented? How do you really align procurement, not just to cute little SMEs, but to actually solve big societal challenges around climate change, so carbon-neutral cities, many different sectors. <laughs> needed across the economy, bottom-up experimentation, exploration. So you can still have this kind of top-down, at least vision, which ideally is not really top-down. It could be nurtured by social movements which actually pressure government to come up with useful missions like they did in Germany with the energy vendor mission, which required even steel to change, but then all the government instruments used for this experimentation process. I'm just showing you this quickly because this is very exciting stuff we're doing literally now. You know, clean oceans, these kind of SDGs that are really broad or just this challenge stuff is really inspirational, but you have to turn it into something concrete, which then requires lots of different sectors. So to get that plastic out, lots of different investments and bottom-up projects. And I think that this, you know, is a hopeful agenda because otherwise people just complain. They complain about short-termism, they complain about, you know, climate change, etc. But if we start with the point that value is created collectively, markets are outcomes of public, private, and civil society, we can change stuff. And, well, I could go on forever, but I'm done. <laughs> and by the way, that report is free on the web, and we're working on it with government to transform its industrial strategy so it doesn't become an opportunity for handouts, but government missions in the UK. But this report, it's free on the web. Um, otherwise, if you're interested, just pass by the Institute. So we have 20 minutes for questions. So I'll, I'll keep a brief queue, and please uh, keep your questions short so we can fit in as, as many as we can. Why don't you leave these? Sure. Hello. Hello. Um, hi. Uh, so yeah, fantastic uh, talk. And I'm really pleased that you and I had like kind of really quick things to say, and then if I may, kind of my question. I sort of worked and studied in this area, both in the public and the private sector for a number of years, and I've been really thinking about this, so I've consumed 
uh, your previous book and can't wait to do the next one. There's a question around, obviously, paternalism. There's a question around um, how do you price risk? Uh, there's a question around uh, the value of connecting uh, different economic factors in the age of... Sorry, the value of? Connecting different economic yep. uh, sort of factors of production, if you will, in the age of uh, data and in, in, this, in this new age. But I really like what you said at the end around the top-down uh, vision. In my experience, it's down to the government to create that vision and be that bold. You, you, you mentioned the, the moonshot uh, with the president coming out and saying this is what we're going to do in this century and so on and so forth. We haven't really, really had that. Um, and that brings into questions like, you know, who owns the data? So, for example, you know, in infrastructure, you're talking about Uber buying into uh, a central base point. Well, that's a lot of effort and capital that requires to undertake that, uh, yeah. that big. So if the government wants to do that, that is something that they can absolutely do. And I think Uber would actually love that, as would city mappers and other, uh, other type, type ventures. So your views on all those points, slash, especially the last one, would be okay. really helpful. Sure. Are you going to take a couple or one? one you want to take them as they come? Sure, whatever. Thank you. So thank you for those 12 questions I've written down. <laughs> no, just kidding. I want to talk about paternalism. So um, first, the top-down thing. I think it's very, very important. And um, this literally, I, I've never written something like this. You know, we academics like to blah, blah, right? thick books. And this is like a manual. It's like, all right, this is how you, you know, choose the mission so I can read to you. We'll read, it's just five, very easy. First, it has to be bold, inspirational, with wide societal relevance. Well, who decides what's relevant? The dictator? Kennedy? He's not a dictator, but you know, one guy? His friends? Mm -hmm. Kind of, okay, for the moonshot, but today, where the challenges are, these so-called wicked challenges around inequality, health issues, climate change, it's much more powerful if those missions can eventually be top-down, so you have to then you know, say, this is it, this is what we're gonna go for, and then align your different policy areas, but that it be a result of listening, which is very hard. I don't listen that much. My mom used to listen a lot. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I listen, but you know, academics talk, right? But the art of listening is not easy. So in government, it tends to fear social movements, because social movements, by definition, are often against what's happening. If you can somehow capture and listen and bring to your policy, your missions, what people really think is important. I think that's hugely valuable. Also, because then the mission will be more resilient. Because it takes time to solve these missions, right? It might take seven or 10 years, and the electoral cycle is much lower. So if you actually end up with a mission that people care about, just because you get a new president or prime minister, it's harder to just say, nope, we're gonna change our mind, now it's my little pet project. And so the Energiewende, or I feel bad, I feel like no one in the back sees me. Uh, the Energiewende mission in Germany, which was, denuclearization, but also, you know, eventually now it's also just about a green direction of the economy, actually came from the green movement. It was decades, like 50 years, that you had a very strong, not so much green party, but green movement in society, which then Merkel eventually kind of top-down organized it. But that's a much more powerful model of how to set missions, and that becomes a, a you know, kind of delicate balance between, yes, you need leadership, and that's Bill Gates's point. He's like, yep, God, you totally described it right. There was serious leadership with the internet, with the whole digital thing, and we followed, he's like, I don't see it in green. So he says exactly what you said. We don't have that same level of mission, ambition, with the, you know, that we had with the moonshot, and the, the internet was just a spillover of that. The internet was not the, the, the goal. Just like today, all this obsession about AI or quantum computing, it misses the trick. Those were 
spillovers of trying to solve problems. And the question is, what are the problems we should be thinking about, not little narrow ones that can be solved by one firm or one, you know, Elon Musk thinking he can just send a submarine to, uh, anyway, I'm going to that. Um, uh, you know, problems that really do require that cross-sectoral, cross-actor, cross-disciplinary. For academics, this is really important. Cross-disciplinary also investments. The humanities, social sciences, I think, are really important in terms of reframing what these missions are, right? Think of all the immigration issues that are out there. Why don't we think of, you know, really challenging, inspirational, you know, relevant to society immigration mission and think how important it would be to make sure that we have, you know, also poets in the room thinking about it. I'm not, I'm, I'm not joking. Like, artists have always been important. Um, Apple knows that. Apple, when it hires people, doesn't just get people who studied coding or entrepreneurship 101. They smartly brought in people from many different areas. The second thing was clear direction, targeted, measurable, and time-bound. You better know when you achieved it. That's the difference between a challenge and a, and a mission. A mission, you can say, yep, we did it. All right, next. Challenge, climate change, everyone can talk about climate change. Third, sorry, there's only five. Ambitious but realistic research and innovation action. So long-termism, but not infinity. Start with some sort of you know, serious capabilities that you have or that you want to build in order to reach that. Cross-disciplinary, cross-sectoral, cross-actor. That's the fourth. It has to be a mission that really is framed in terms of requiring this cross-sectoral investment. Otherwise, it gets captured by life sciences, by automotive, by AI, right? And last, multiple bottom-up solutions. That has to be a mission that really sort of captures the possibility of nurturing all flowers bloom. And many will fail. So precisely because some will fail, you better be careful to either bring back taxation rate to what it was when NASA was founded under Eisenhower, a Republican, 91% upper marginal taxation rate. Should we go back to the era? No comment. Or should we think much more realistically about these different types of contracts that are much more symbiotic and mutualistic and less uh, parasitic that I put up there. And that comes to that data issue. It's about ownership. But instead of saying, oh, that's mine, I'm going to take that bit, really reframing the whole data, big data and AI question and how we structure digital capitalism first requires to say it was co-created. You know, I think we should abolish the word tech companies. Again, most do know technology. They just take the existing technology and then they you know, do valuable things. I'm not saying they're not valuable, but the rewards are completely disproportional to the risks actually taken. Same thing with venture capital. I mean, they're not, they never come in early. You know, most of the high-risk, early-stage investments came elsewhere, either for friends and family, for the few people who have rich family and friends, that's the business angels, that's tiny, or government. Right? Uh, so Yasma in Israel, very important public venture capital fund, Citroen, Finland, um, again in the US from DARPA, NSF, uh, NIH, SBIR through procurement. In fact, VCs in the US always follow the SBIR uh, early stage uh, high risk finance from procurement because they know that's a good indicator of who to invest in, but they come in mid-stage. So it's not to say venture capitalists are a bunch of you know, rent extractors, but they're getting too much for what they put in. 20%, that's way too high given the actual risk they took. So rebalancing risks and rewards. And I think that way of framing it would help us think about the data question. That was a very long answer. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I'll be much more short. Uh, in the black box. Um, this one? Yeah. yeah. We'll sit. Apple. Apple, yeah. Apple. I'll sit. Um, okay, so the... I'm a historian of British politics, and um, it's not as though there's never been challenges to kind of narrowly economic notions of value um, put forward by political parties. And so 
Um, on the left, there's been this sort of long-standing notion of an ethical socialist tradition associated with figures like William Morris and Towney and people like that. Um, and on the right, um, uh, we forget this, but uh, before he became prime minister, David Cameron gave a speech to Google in which he talked about uh, a happiness index and gross domestic happiness as a new measure uh, for public policy success, right? So these sorts of um, rhetorics that challenge the notion of, of value as bound up with the market or with economic value um, have existed. Yep. What I've observed is that they tend to disappear as soon mm -hmm. as political parties come into office. Um, so, and that's the case on both the left and the right, this kind of idealistic rhetoric just gets sideswept. Um, and I think that's arguably because of, you know, the fiscal constraints of governing and the treasury and, and whatnot. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, what are the politics of this? Um, and um, how can the discourse be shifted at a broader level such that it isn't just totally overturned by the realities of governing or the sort of framework that the state provides? Okay, thanks. Uh, Professor Mazzucato, thank you very much, by the way, for a fascinating talk. And um, at the very beginning, you said um, money budgets come and go. Uh, you said, but organizations and public sector bodies, that they need to be protected, they need to be invested in. Uh, I just wonder what your views are on the ability of public sector organizations um, in central government or, or supported by government to actually enact this kind of change given that you know, we have seen a whittling down, a skinnying down of government, both here in the UK, but also elsewhere. Can you handle three at once? That, that is three. Oh, sorry, the first one answered. Yep, <laughs> I didn't cross it off. <laughs> yeah, I can do another one. Okay. I have a question that is about, um, well, first, my name is Sky Lawrence. I'm here at UCL, and I uh, teach. I have a firm teaching negotiation, and I've been working with some clients that are state. Um, well, so they're they're exactly SB. What is it? Uh, federally funded venture capital state funds in the U.S. So there's a whole bunch of them um, that basically do that sort of risk gap of early stage, so that venture capital can then come in, and they're trying to figure out what the best model. So they do fund of funds. They do all these different models. And one of the things they keep saying to me is, how do we tell the value story better? Because it's really hard to tell that story to a policymaker. Missouri just had a huge amount of money cut from their budget. Um, and we've been having this Sorry, conversation. Who, who is asking you this? Uh, a lot of, a bunch of different states that run states. these innovation ecosystems, right. right? So they do accelerators, incubators, and state-sponsored yeah. venture capital. And, and is this here or in the U.S.? In the U.S., in multiple states. And they're saying, how do we tell this story better? Because it's exactly what you're getting yeah. at, which is when we want to go get that money from policymakers, they oftentimes cut it because we, we don't have the exact numbers. But we want to tell that story better. So I'd love to know your thought on how they can mm. tell, that, tell that better. Good. Right. Yep. Okay, I'll try to be quicker. The other one. Um, right. So this political issue. So first of all, you're absolutely right. There's huge amounts in terms of political theory. I kind of touched on it in the book, but my main point, and which is a limited point, but unfortunately an important point, and this is Keynes speaking. He said uh, people on the ground who are just doing stuff, you know, practitioners. He said they think they're just getting their you know, job done, who cares about academia, what these economists are talking about, but they're actually slaves of defunct economic theory. 
So if you look at how the treasury works, they might, you know, I talk to them all the time. So I talk to sort of the heads of the treasury, but also people just doing work and they're just like, yeah, whatever. You know, we're just, we have to do our calculations and we have to justify, but how they're doing their net present value, how they're doing the cost benefit is completely actually coming from theory. How we think of what wages are, um, if they really are kind of related to their kind of neoclassical factors that would affect how you do your welfare policy of who you think deserves what, right? So for me, it was not about, so I'll just say it was a book that was quite ignorant on the political discussion. It was just to say in economics as a profession that is so powerful because it does drive so much of government thinking, whether the government officials know it or not, the, the lack of this value debate has really hurt. So um, even when you get people talking about, you mentioned happiness, it, it kind of misses the trick. So as much as I admire people like Matthias Sen and Stiglitz and Fitusi who did that nice little book on we need to include well-being and happiness in GDP, my thing is, well, you know what? First take out the rent. You can't just add stuff in, like happiness. Most of what's in GDP in this country is rent. They've confused profits with rent. There's lots of unearned income, actually. Um, and so you know, my, my husband always says, because I bring a lot of things home. I buy little trinkets at antique shops or whatever. And he's like, for everything you bring, two things out. <laughs> so I just put my kids' things out the window and I bring in more trinkets. But um, same thing here, right? Take, you know, don't just start adding in happiness indicators. So the problem is that Cameron, for sure, but even people more you know, intellectually engaged than he is, didn't actually go after these value propositions. It was just saying these other things are valuable. So like the feminists saying care, of course we must value care. And I'm, I was just spent the day today with Sue Himmelweit, who founded the Women's Budget Group, which was very much about that. So I had to have nothing against that, but we kind of know that. What I'm saying is that unless we really, and this will come to your question, better understand the value proposition behind you know, state entities or workers, et cetera, it becomes very hard just to sort of add stuff. And um, politics are, are hugely important, of course, but this political cycle, which is also hugely constraining, this is why you actually have to make it much stronger as an argument. So that's why I began saying you can't just tax wealth as much as I think we should tax it better, but that's Piketty's big result in his book. And I'm like, fine, but you're gonna have a really hard time doing that when that narrative that you're talking about is as strong as it is. And you gotta first kill, well, not kill, much more proper than that. First, completely debunk that, and then this, this progressive taxation will be more resilient. It's gonna be hard to take it away because there's gonna be a, a narrative like the one that Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, how do you say, very uh, courageously say, because you don't hear that from Peter Thiel. <laughs> he says the opposite. Anyway, um, it's actually quite crazy. He, he wants a secessionist movement so all the entrepreneurs can secede off the coast of California until the tsunami comes and they call the Coast Guard and get you know, saved. Anyway, um, so the, yeah, public organizations. So the whole point, actually, of me setting up this institute was that. So in our little brochure, I should have brought them. I bring them anyway. I don't know why I put them. Is we start off just by counseling words, right? We say, civil servants, how have they been trained? Very problematically. So the quick answer to your question is, they're not, they don't have the tools to do what I'm talking about, right? So de-risking? Mm-mm. You know, if, if you de-risk, you also fear risk because you're, you're seeing risk as a problem. You're de-risking the private sector. You're allowing them to call themselves risk taker, but you, in the process, kind of fear this thing called risk. So we cross it off and say, welcome uncertainty. <laughs> There's a whole difference between risk and uncertainty, but actually to really say, it's gonna be hard. Things are complex. These wicked challenges are complex. We have to actually take risks. We have to experiment and explore within public institutions. They're not allowed to do that. If they fail, bang, front page of the Daily Mail. 
and yet venture capitalists are proud when they fail. Even uh, Zuckerberg, when he was you know, put under uh, oath and had to admit his failings, he's like, yeah, sorry, we screwed up, but we've learned, we'll do better. Civil Sermon can't say that. Or Steve Jobs' great uh, speech to the Stanford graduating class, he said, to innovate, you have to be hungry and foolish. Yeah, yeah. Really? Can civil servants be hungry and foolish? Are they told to be hungry and foolish? No, they're depressed. I mean, I often say that I walk in as an economist and I walk out as a life coach. Um, so it's true. They hug me. Like, oh, you give me a reason to wake up. Thank you. So fixing markets, slash. I usually put it up there. Co-creating and shaping. What does that mean? Uh, leveling the playing field? No. You don't level the playing field towards a green economy. You tilt it. But you don't tilt it by choosing one or two companies or one or two technologies like offshore wind. You say, we're going to move this economy in a green direction. We're going to do it on the supply side, the demand side. We'll you know, line up policies. We'll have lots of bottom-up experimentation. It can't happen top-down in a Soviet way. We know that doesn't work, but we have to reward green behaviors over dirty behaviors. We have to reward long-termism over short-termism. We have to make initial investor first resort investments. We need to align procurement policy, et cetera. That's not about leveling. Um, we don't pick winners, we pick the willing. We don't outsource, we build capacity. I mean, you can outsource catering. I was a professor at Sussex and the students, I never really understood, but they went on massive strike because we outsourced the catering. Is that gonna kill the university? Probably not. When you outsource IT in government, it kills you, right? That's the SNA. The whole Snowden affair came from outsourcing the IT systems. You don't outsource your core competence. Whether they should not have outsourced catering, I'm not sure, but I don't see that as a huge problem. Cost benefit, that's not gonna get you to do any mission. Any sort of bold policy, like setting up the welfare state, setting up the NHS, going to the moon, getting the plastic out of the ocean, a cost benefit analysis would kill it from the beginning. So our ambition is to say they actually don't have the tools. We have to provide new tools, and that's why we're setting up this whole new curriculum, also for executives to do one-week courses on rethinking literally that role. Um, lastly, um, negotiate. Wow, I need to. Are you a lawyer? Uh, no, but I work for a law firm. Oh, please get in touch later, because I just gave a talk. Well, I just spent four hours here with government. I said, we need lawyers. We, we, we need you know, people to get these negotiations differently. It's really crazy. What's happening in space is mad. Like all the worst things we did on Earth, we're now doing in space in terms of the negotiation. So states, you know, first of all, what's interesting is states have much more power than the federal government. So with fracking, which was government finance, but they didn't do it because of that, but the land is actually states, they're, they're keeping profits from it. Now what they do with the profits, if you don't actually have a, a real engagement, so, so this is the self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing. On the one hand, you get many public institutions not allowed to make a profit, so NASA is not allowed to make a profit. It can only get money from the Budget Appropriations Committee. You could argue that's fine. I think that's fine as long as it's about basic R&D. But when they're helping individual companies like SpaceX, why they don't retain a bit of equity and these investments that, again, SpaceX is fine, others failed, I think that's wrong. But also when they do take their cut, because there isn't a serious debate in society that this is public wealth, this actually belongs to a democratic you know, sort of society where taxpayers or you know, financing some of this stuff, then it should also be better discussed what we're financing with that stuff. So fracking itself, was that a good investment that the government made? Maybe there should have been more discussion in society instead of just worrying about it later. Once it happened, you had all these people saying, shit, we got all these geological movements underground, this is bad, some people pro, some people against. But by definition, if you think public institutions are active co-creators of wealth, you also need to think, what are we investing in? And that's that missions issue of societal relevance. But then how to do it, um, I mean, all you have to do is look around the world, for example, Yasma that I mentioned in Israel, they do retain royalties. 
Uh, Citra did retain some equity in Nokia um, and then vested it in sort of other areas. You do have public banks. Some are really good, some are completely crappy. So the Italian one, I'm Italian. I know I sound American, but moved to, moved to America when I was five uh, because my dad who does publicly funded nuclear fusion um, in Italy, the public bank is just about subsidies, handouts, and, and enforces this kind of parasitic public-private. Many government programs are problematic. I am not a defender of the state. I say the state is part of the problem because it's been convinced that it's just there as an impediment or an enabler, at best a de-risker, at best a, a, a value redistributor. So then its policies aren't well designed. It actually you know, often is just handouts. So life sciences strategy, why? when the pharmaceutical industry is super financialized, make sure you have a strategy to engage the pharmaceutical industry more in areas that are really relevant, given that they're receiving huge amounts, 32 billion in the US, right? So how states can do it, interestingly, they have more power than the, than the federal government, but they're doing it in ways that are just about capturing their little share without really engaging it in a bigger thing. So I think also just looking around the world where it has sort of worked in terms of those, that list of tools, um, but you know, Alec, okay, I should know her name, so I'm talking to her next week. Alexandra Cortez Ocampo, is that New York 14th? Yeah, so we're talking next week about the Green New Deal that she wants to propose. Yeah, and I wanna focus on that, which is don't just do another thing where you say government should spend on green. How do you really restructure these investments? Yeah, and oh yeah, sorry, and your state investments, this is the point. They have to first make sure that the narrative, I mean, first of all, just the marketing, People don't know that Tesla received 465 million guaranteed. They know about the Solyndra. Uh, when Obama did Obamacare, he, he really didn't have the narrative. So when the Tea Party, I forgot about the Tea Party because now Trump's completely taken over the craziness, but the Tea Party was pretty crazy if you remember what they were saying. And they said, you can't uh, meddle in our healthcare, right? It's fine to have 60 million people uninsured and, and you know, that's meddling. And what he said was the standard social democratic response, which is, but of course we should. There's 60 million people uninsured, you know, it's, it's sick, which it is. What he should have said is first, he should have said, meddling? What are you talking about? We created this healthcare system and just put out some of this data. 75% of the drugs in the, you know, in CVS or whatever were funded by NIH. 32 billion a year, not in regulation, not an in intervention, in investment. Investment that the private sector was not willing to make until those areas are less uncertain, then they come in, fine. As long as we say the truth, then the profits being earned are too high relative to the risks they actually took. So uncovering through just facts some of the stories of these investments that government made, you know, we, I think we should have a movie on it, commercials, I don't know. There's all sorts of narrative changing mechanisms on social media, but you have to, it should be a movement to be honest. It's probably a different story. Yeah. Obama tried when he did that whole we, we built that thing, but it was just a little side thing he said. I'm afraid that's us all out of time. There are many questions left on the queue, so I hope you'll all join us for a more informal conversation over a glass of wine in the back. And I hope you'll all join me in thanking uh, our speaker, Mary Alice Carter.